Chapter Ten of the Apostle of Alaska: The Story of William Duncan of Metlakatla by John W. Arctander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Phil Schempf. Peculiar customs. Both the men and women of this nation in olden times wore rings in their noses and rings or shells in their ears. The men of rank often wore a number of them in the ears the women of rank were provided with a labrette or ornament of bone inlaid with abalone shell two or three inches long and up to an inch wide which was inserted in an opening in the chin it came about in this way when a girl reached the age of puberty she was shut up by herself either in a hut in the forest or in a separate enclosure in the house for a period of about six months during this period when no one except her mother was allowed to see her a slit was cut parallel with her lower lip and a little below it in this slit was inserted a piece of bone the slit was gradually made larger and a larger ornament inserted the larger a woman's labrette the higher her rank slaves were not allowed to wear them at all a Timshian woman would never think of appearing before a strange man or in company without her labrette should she accidentally do so she would feel as embarrassed as would one of our ladies to-day who might be surprised in undress when the six months were over it was claimed that she had come back from the moon a feast was held for her and property was given away when the guests were all gathered in the house a curtain was withdrawn and the maiden was shown sitting surrounded by the coppers of the family or the tribe and commenced to sing a song Footnote coppers are large engraved and hammered shields of native copper heirlooms and very costly possessions End footnote. this constituted the young lady's coming out she was now marriageable her marriage was proceeded with as follows the young girls are kept very strictly they must be modest and never look at a young man outside the house they could appear only with the mother or an older sister there was therefore a very limited chance for flirtation or even courtship when a young man desired to marry the young lady he consulted with his parents or perhaps it is more correct to say that they consulted with him when they had found some one they wanted him to marry as the mother of a young man was usually the one who looked around to find a suitable bride for him the mother then went to the parents of the girl and told them she would like their daughter for her son if they would agree the girl's parents never gave an answer right away that would look as if they were anxious to get rid of her after listening to what the boy's mother had to say they without committing themselves in any way told her that they would consult their relatives on the subject this ended the meeting after a few moons the boy's mother would again call on the girl's parents if their answer was favorable they would now suggest that the young people wait a year so as to see if they behaved themselves and that they would not shame their folks the engagement thus being settled without the intervention of the young people the boy's mother brought a present to the girl's mother perhaps a basketful of cedar bark torn up like fine oakum which they used for toweling or something of that sort when the wedding day finally had been fixed the young man's father and uncles visited the girl's father and mother and gave them presents generally canoes slaves and mats that is they did not bring them along but promised them by placing a stick in front of the father if they meant to give a canoe and a stone if they meant a slave 
if this offering was deemed sufficient the recipient would nod his head and that settled the matter this was really the purchase price which the boy's family paid for the girl on the wedding day the young man is seated on a mat in the house of the girl's parents with his parents and uncles the girl's mother would then go to the house where the girl is kept bring her in leading her by the hand and take her over to the mat where the young man sits she then seated herself on the mat at his side but without either taking his hand or even speaking to him this was the whole marriage ceremony the procession would now start for the young man's home if he had no house of his own his home from that time was with his maternal uncle not with his father in the procession the bridegroom went first then the bride then his relatives and lastly hers a feast was now given to the relatives and later on one to the leading men of the village it was now the bride's parents turn to give presents the father generally presenting them with a supply of food the mother with spoons and other household utensils when a child came the girl's mother gave presents to the mother of the young man when a man died his children went to their mother's oldest brother to live and became his children the dead man's property all descended to his oldest sister's oldest son so did the widow whom he had to marry and this whether he had a wife already or not if he did not want to marry her he must give her an indemnity when she could marry someone else when a young man in this manner got an old wife it was not unusual for him to take a young one also about the same time except in these particular cases polygamy was not practiced before duncan came to these people they cremated their dead the only exception was in the case of the medicine man who perhaps was considered too tough to burn and who were placed in a sitting position in a box which was either hidden among the branches of a tall tree or deposited on a prominent rock in some lonely spot at the funeral this was the procedure the box containing the corpse was placed on a mat in the centre of the floor the widow and children blackened their faces with charcoal or black paint cut their hair short put on the poorest and worst clothing they had took some old mats which had been thrown away and made headdresses of them they then formed a procession the widow leading then the children according to their ages after which came the relatives then all marched around the box if the deceased was a chief they sang their famous lemkoi or funeral dirge this is never sung save at the funeral of a chief and is so sad and melancholy that a strong man is always chosen to lead it as most of the people break into violent weeping during the singing if it was not a chief's funeral an incessant wailing was kept up as long as the corpse was in the house after a proper amount of wailing the box containing the body was taken out and placed in the centre of a pile of wood back of the house and burned the bones remaining were picked up ground into dust and placed in a small box which if the deceased had a totem pole was preserved in an opening in the back part of the pole if not the ashes were sometimes placed in a mortuary column erected for the deceased some time after his death but as both totem poles and mortuary columns were the exception rather than the rule with the Chimpsians, in most cases no further attention was paid to the ashes of the dead after the cremation the Tsimsheans were very hospitable the arrival of a stranger was always the signal for immediately setting before him of the best which the house could afford the winter season was one continuous round of feasting 
now one chief then another made a feast and every imaginable pretext was made use of as an excuse for a feast and this not only to give them a chance to show their hospitality but just as much to furnish an opportunity to show off if there was anything that the tsimsheans prized more than a parade and display of what they had it must have been the observation of the strictest rules of etiquette they were worse sticklers on etiquette than the lord chamberlain of a european imperial court if a boy should have his ears pierced or should assume a more important family name or should become what they call a principal at once each of these occasions called for a feast or rather several feasts and in the latter case also for a potlatch if a house was to be built there had to be four different feasts with plenty to eat placed before the guests in big boxes sometimes in small canoes and it all had to be eaten too or at least taken away these feasts were distributed during the course of two years but after the last feast must come a great potlatch which consisted in the host making his guests presents of all he had in the world of personal property we will witness such a potlatch given by a noted simchian chief the more display that can be made and the more property given away the greater the glory is reflected on the tribe therefore all the members of his tribe present to him for days all that they possess coppers slaves canoes guns blankets furs of all kinds nets mats kettles bracelets necklaces rings headdresses masks calico dress goods hats moccasins and all other things fit to give away the first parade and display is now made of what these good people give to their chief for him to give away to others the day before the great potlatch they exhibit their gifts publicly hundreds of yards of calico and cotton goods are flapping in the breeze hung from house to house furs are nailed to the doors blankets and elk skins are carried along the beach by carriers walking in single file the cotton and calico is then brought down to the beach the farther away from the chief's house the better unrolled to its full length a bearer is then secured for about every three yards and now it is carried in triumph to the chief's house that and all the other presents are to be his now his people have impoverished themselves but in another day he will not be much better off all of theirs and all of his will then be gone he and his chief counsellors and his wife are already apportioning this new property brought to him among those who are to be his guests on the morrow the great day comes and with it the chiefs and leading men of the other tribes and sometimes of other nations or settlements but not one of the chief's friends in his own tribe if they are present it is only as spectators to witness the great sight not a yard of calico or an ounce of powder is given to any of them the chief is seated at the chief's seat the other great chiefs around him sitting according to their rank a herald announces the article the chief who continuously consults a bundle of memorandum sticks in his hand announces the name of the recipient and with great pomp the gift is delivered though the next morning the chief is as poor as when he came into the world the fact does not bother him a bit for he has experienced the glory of a potlatch which will be spoken of for many moons but do not think for a moment that he is actuated by a desire to realize the beautiful sentiment it is more blessed to give than to receive far from it 
that suffices for his poor tribespeople who now have to go to work to replenish their exhausted exchequer by hard labor excessive industry and hard-fisted economy and who have no other means of regaining their lost property not so for the chief his giving away property is not given away at all it is the tsimshean way of banking and life insurance molded into one he never gives away anything which he is not sure to get back with interest at the next potlatch which that chief gives in fact these chiefs spend a good deal of their time in keeping track of what they have received from each chief at every potlatch and in calculating what they shall give to each in order to return an equivalent and a little more the home of the indian chief is not a convenient place to keep potted wealth in so he sets the ball rolling some of it is here and some there but as time goes on it comes back with a little more now from this chief and then again from another in other words his deposit in the bank is cashed out in smaller amounts as he needs it and a little interest is added for the use of it what more can he require as to this proceeding being in the nature of a life insurance as well let the following indicate the chief dies but his wife has the memo sticks and is posted on all his gifts and as to who is owing him and how much and no chief will dare to slight the nephew heir fail to invite him or to make him the suitable gift due to his ancestor for he well knows that the widow keeps a strict account and as she has married the heir she can keep him posted woe to the chief who failed to return the gift he owed songs would be made about him shaming him and he might just as well seek death at once life would be unendurable after such a deed he has been guilty of the unpardonable sin that is all it is even suggested that it is in order to enable the heir to keep track of these valuable claims that the tsimshean law requires the nephew to marry the widow although the wise men added that a young man and an old wife and an old man and a young wife should ever be the rule because then in both cases there is at least one wise person in the house it is in these potlatches and the contributions of the common people of the tribe to the chief's treasury we find the only vestige of taxes or salary paid by the people to their chiefs as a chief never does any manual labor he must of course find his living somewhere and here a way is pointed out for him to do so there was another way in which property was disposed of even more foolishly among these people it was this when one of them felt himself insulted or aggrieved by another he would in the presence of the other destroy his own canoe or other valuable property the other must then at the risk of being shamed out of countenance by the people destroy the same article belonging to himself then the first one destroys another article and he has to follow suit if he fails he is shamed and practically ostracized he certainly cannot show his face again in decent society many a man has in this way been absolutely ruined by a richer enemy gambling was the national vice of the tsimsheans many of their legends have to do with men who gambled away all that they possessed slaves canoes coppers wife and children at all their festivities in fact on all possible occasions the indians painted their faces in a most horrible manner while they perhaps could find an excuse for doing so in their continuous exposure to the elements and to the attack of gnats and mosquitoes 
the real reason undoubtedly was that by painting their faces they desired to make themselves look as terror-striking as possible lex talionis was the supreme rule among the tsimsians as among all primitive peoples but retaliation among them took a peculiar form when a haida indian had killed a tsimshean the law was satisfied by killing the first haida they came across without regard to whether he or even his tribe had had anything to do with the killing of the tsimshean if the man killed was a chief two of the other nation had to pay for it with their lives then and then only was the slate wiped clean if one of the two killed in retaliation was a chief or leading man they had overshot the mark and some more killing was due but a murder like all other injuries could be settled for by paying an indemnity every imaginable injury had a fixed compensatory scheduled price in blankets it would sometimes bother a philadelphia lawyer to figure out the liability in these cases whether the wrongdoer intended his act or it was wholly accidental did not cut any figure at all except possibly as to the amount of the compensation if an indian shot at my decoy and thereby lost his cartridge i was bound to pay him the price of the cartridge it has even been held that the owner of a stolen rifle had to pay indemnity to the relatives of the burglar who stole it and accidentally shot himself with it for his death if a man is attacked by a savage dog and kills him in self-defense he must pay the owner for the dog a small trading schooner in a furious gale once rescued two indians from a sinking canoe which had been carried out to sea the canoe was so large that it could neither be carried nor towed and the natives themselves cut the worthless craft adrift when the captain landed the men at their village they demanded of him payment for the canoe we cannot blame him for not seeing it in that light but still it was a perfectly correct position to take from the tsimshean point of view if a child is killed the indemnity goes to its mother's brother not to the father a native by an unfortunate accident once killed his own son and had to pay indemnity for his life to his wife's brother or be killed himself to balance the account a short time before duncan's arrival the fort came near being destroyed by fire the smoke-house directly back of the men's quarters had caught fire and before it was discovered all of that part of the fort was in flames during the excitement some two hundred indians had come into the fort helping to carry water from the sea finally one of them suggested carrying a canoe up on the gallery and fill it with water and when full tip it over the building on fire this was done and undoubtedly saved the fort from destruction when the fire had been put out the indians refused to leave claiming that the fort belonged to them now inasmuch if it had not been for them it would have been burned the issue would perhaps have been doubtful if the captain had not succeeded in bribing one of the chiefs who made a speech and induced them to give up their claim this chief forever afterwards went by the name of spokes a title well earned by his effective argument until their contamination by the whites the tsimsheans stood high in the moral scale they were well known all over that part of the country for their honesty and uprightness theft was entirely unknown among them they had no intoxicating liquor of their own and did not know what intoxication was until the white men brought the curse among them and taught them how to distill the hoochinoo the vilest concoction imaginable with the fire-water came destruction to both soul and body of the poor victims 
the tsimsheans did raise a kind of substitute for tobacco which they did not however use for smoking only for chewing before the white men came among them lapses from virtue on the part of their women were practically unknown unfaithfulness on the part of a wife was punished by death the injured husband executing the law himself and in addition collecting a heavy indemnity from the partner in her crime or taking revenge upon him by killing him when the whites came to the coast the sobriety and honesty of the men and the purity of the women soon vanished after a while it became the fashion for the tsimsheans to bring their wives daughters and nieces by the canoe load to victoria where they would rent them out for prostitution without in any manner perceiving the moral obliquity of the act did not the white people do it when duncan had been at the fort for a year or two an indian one day came to him quite excited and wanted him to go for some men on a schooner in the harbor when duncan asked him why he coolly said they have had my two wives on board all night and will not pay for them you scamp you why did you let your wives go because they promised to pay me for them it is needless to say that mr duncan did not go for them instead that particular indian received the finest tongue-lashing he had ever had through the influence and evil example of many bad white men the tsimsheans had been hurled from the lofty position of happiness and innocence which they had once occupied through the loving influence and god-fearing example of one white man they were to be again restored to the heights where they once soared and that from the deepest depths of degradation end of chapter ten